0: Hi, I'm Ian Rankin, and these are the books of my life.
1: So, as we all know, crime fiction sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap. And fair enough, there are plenty of crime writers out there doing their very best to murder the English language and somehow still selling a morgue full of books. Hi, Lee Child. Although if you are listening and want to come on the Books of My Life podcast, you'd be very welcome, of course. But when crime fiction is done well, it can be as invigorating as any literature. Twists, turns and red herrings are fine, but what we really want is characters. Proper villains who unsettle us, cops whose intentions we can't easily grasp, and a maverick to finally solve the mystery. I really don't think it's an overstatement to say that no one is currently doing all of this better than Ian Rankin. Ian, of course, introduced us to Detective Inspector John Rebus way back in 1987, and it tells you pretty much everything you need to know that the grizzled old cop has returned in 22 novels since. Rebus is getting older, and if Rebus now shuffles rather than strides around the streets of Edinburgh, he's lost none of his spark. Before I spoke to Ian, I decided to read one of his more recent Rebus novels, Even Dogs in the Wild, and ended up leaving the office earlier and earlier each day just to get back to it. What I love about Ian's writing is that, despite the darkness, It's funny, too, and full of sentences where you just think, yeah, no one else being ranking could have written that. But look, before we get to any of that, please do subscribe to the Books of My Life podcast. We'd love to have you with us every week. And we've got some great guests coming up. And don't forget to send us your own choices. We've got our own email address, booksofmylife at ae. So get in touch. That'd be great. In 1987, a Scottish author called Ian Rankin published a novel called Knots and Crosses and introduced the world to Inspector John Rebus, the maverick cop who solves the crimes taking place in Edinburgh's darkest corners. Um, A fair amount has happened since then. In the next 30-odd years, Rankin has written a further 21 Rebus novels, sold an extraordinary 28 million books worldwide, and been elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. So you'll have to forgive me for being... Quite so excited about welcoming Ian Rankin to Books of My Life, a podcast from the National, where I have the very good fortune to speak to a different guest each week about the books that changed them. Ian Rankin, hi there, thanks for joining us. How are you? Uh,
0: I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Good.
1: Um, so, look, do those sorts of numbers—twenty-two Rebus novels, twenty-eight million copies—do do they ever really sink in? Do you sort of think about that at all?
0: Uh, the number of books I've written, yes. Because I can look at a shelf and see them and think, "Where did my life go?" <laughs> uh, you know, there it is. I mean, that's my whole adult life represented on those shelves. Uh, the numbers, not so much, because it's kind of made up. Let's let's give away some some stage secrets here. Nobody really knows how many books you've sold. You can have a, you can have a, you know. I can tell how many books I've sold in print mm. in some countries, um, but it, you know, e-books. It's much harder to get the numbers. Some countries around the world that translate my books, I never get numbers. So a lot of it's just a kind of guesstimate. I mean, you know, somewhere between twenty and thirty-five million, I would guess. But that's yeah. quite a big uh, gap there.
1: <laughs> so actually, just, I sort of undersold you with the twenty-eight million figure. Well, no, <laughs>
0: you haven't. I mean, I'd say you're right in the ballpark.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um, actually when was the last time one of your books didn't go straight to the top of the bestseller charts it must have been a while
0: uh n- n- no it was um the latest one went to the top of the uk charts but okay. the one before that rather be the devil was held from the number one spot i believe by lee child but quite- you know i'm not i'm not a guy who holds a grudge
1: yeah I was good to say that that, 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 <laughs> <laughs> that won't be infuriating at all i'm sure are you friends with
0: lee yeah, I did an event with him actually when, uh, when the new book came out in November down in London and we filled the Royal Festival Hall, which is a I don't know, 1,500 seat theatre. And it was our first time appearing on stage together. Although we've known each other for years, we get invited to the same book festivals, uh, we'd never actually been on stage together and it was, it was a lot of fun. He's a really interesting and, and clever and astute guy. Yeah, I was going to say, do
1: you you, you read many of your, um, I was going to say rivals, I suppose contemporaries is a better term. Um, Do you you read many of your sort of rival um, crime novelists?
0: I do. I mean, there are certain writers whose books I would always read, um, there are certain writers you try and keep up. There's an awful lot of crime fiction out there. There's there's many more crime fiction titles published every year than I could ever keep up with. What I do try and do is read new writers, young writers, um, people who are just starting, you know, first rung of the ladder of publishing. Um, can, can I see what people are doing with the crime novel? Because, you know, authors who are new to the crime novel are maybe sometimes trying to do something different to what I've been doing for the last 30 years. And it's always great when you see an exciting new voice.
1: Let's have some names, though. Uh, who, who are the exciting young crime novelists that, you, that you'd that you want to recommend at the moment?
0: Um, well, uh, young or not so young, I mean, Adrian McKinty should be better known. Adrian McKinty is an Irish writer. He writes about the troubles. He writes about the, 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 the kind of terrorism issues that were in Northern Ireland, specifically in the 70s and 80s. He's got a Catholic cop who um, has to check underneath his car every morning for bombs in case the terrorists are trying to blow him up um he brings in politics and you know moments from history he uses um, real events sometimes as the starting point for his books, and all of that resonates with me because I often do the same sort of thing.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And and basically he's trying to explain what happened. He's trying to explain the troubles to us. He's trying to explain the situation in Northern Ireland, so that's a fascinating thing to do. There's, a, there's an Indian writer, Anita Nair, um, who doesn't just write crime fiction, but she's written two novels with a detective, and she again takes on social issues. You can tell that's maybe my... <laughs> that's what I like when I when I read crime fiction is that there's a little yeah. bit of any kind of politics and a little bit of society in there. Um, so she'll take on problems with 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 trafficked children or street children or sexual politics. Um, she's a really interesting writer and a really really great novel. So there's a couple.
1: Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm interested in what you said there about what you like in in crime fiction because you sort of didn't actually see yourself as a, a as a crime fiction writer to start with. Is that right?
0: That is correct. I mean, I start. I wrote my first Inspector Rebus book when I was a. PhD student, I was doing a doctoral thesis in the Scottish novel at Edinburgh University and specifically the novels of Muriel Spark, who wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And it's fairly linear process. Miss Jean Brodie tells us in that book that she's descended from a guy called William Brodie who was a carpenter in Edinburgh. Well, he was a real person. Mm -hmm. What she doesn't tell us in the book is that as well as being a carpenter and a member of society, he was also a burglar. He would break into your house and steal your valuables. He had a gang that he ran with and eventually he was caught, he was hanged on a scaffold that he had built himself. And in Robert Louis Stevenson's childhood bedroom was a wardrobe that had been made by William Brodie. And Stevenson's nursemaid would tell him the story of this guy who was good and evil at the same time. So that became Jekyll and Hyde. So Miss Jean Brodie took me to William Brodie, a real-life character, who then took me to Jekyll and Hyde. And the first Rebus book was an attempt to update the story of Jekyll and Hyde to contemporary Edinburgh.
1: Wow, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, And and have you sort of... You sort of made peace with the, with the title of crime writer. I mean, I mean, it, it's sort of a, a, strange, uh, a strange thing to have, I suppose.
0: Well, what happened was after that first book was published, um, the Crime Writers Association of Great Britain got in touch and said, oh, you've written a crime novel, you should join us. And I thought, I've written a crime novel. So um, I went to the local bookstore and sure enough, they'd put my book in the crime section, not in the Scottish literature section. So I was kind of a little bit stunned by that. And so I started to read crime fiction. I hadn't, written, I hadn't read crime fiction okay. up until then. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed it. I liked the sense of place, the strong characterization, um, the fact that you can explore a culture from top to bottom by means of a detective. I knew what to write about Edinburgh, past and present. I knew I wanted to write about social concerns, social issues. Um, and crime fiction seemed the perfect way of doing that. And a detective who has access to every layer of society from the very top to the very bottom seemed the perfect character to allow me to do that
1: okay so i uh, i've got lots of questions about about what you're reading and what you used to read but i know that um everyone's going to want to know a bit more about rebus myself included so i guess uh very quickly 30 years down the line do you uh do you still like this character do you, does he ever irritate you or are you still sort of uh, very fond of him
0: Uh, Well, I'm probably fonder of him than he would be of me. (laughs) He's been a a wishy-washy liberal. Um, He's more of a kind of Old Testament character. He sees the, the world in terms of absolutes, of good and evil um my kind of uh, conversation with him in the books is to try and persuade him that there are shades of gray in between uh, absolutes um yeah I, you know what each book to me feels like a brand new adventure because mm. i've decided to move him along in more or less real time so the rebus that i write about now is not the guy i wrote about 10 20 or 30 years ago his life has moved on he's retired now he's no longer a cop he's got some health issues his relationships have changed he's now got a dog uh he never had a dog until two books ago yeah um and so his his life, is world keeps changing, the world around him keeps changing, technology keeps changing that the police use to investigate crimes. So that keeps the series fresh, that keeps me on my toes. It presents challenges for me, but the challenges are also opportunities. So I don't see an end point. I've not really thought, oh, what's the last final Rebus book? I just, I get an idea for a story and I think, is this a Rebus novel? Oh, it feels like it is. Let's get started.
1: And how much, um, how much Ian Rankin is there in Inspector John
0: Rebus? Not much. Not much. Uh, we've, okay. got, we've got we, we we drink in the same bar in Edinburgh. Yeah, I gather. Same. The Oxford Bar is a real pub. I mean, fans come there as a kind of pilgrimage. Um, we have the same taste in music. We grew up in the same little town north of Edinburgh, and he lives in the street that I lived in when I was a student and was writing the first book.
1: The thing I find most amazing is that uh, I gather that you don't smoke. And I think Rebus must smoke at least 30 hours a day. Um, and some of the scenes capture so perfectly what it's like to have a cigarette. And I just wondered, you know, A, how you've managed to do that. And B, do you ever get the itch to just light up a cigarette when you're writing those scenes? No, uh,
0: no, no, no. I'm, I, I, you know, I wish I hadn't made him a smoker. My mum died of lung cancer <laughs> right. when I was 19. Um, I was around smokers. My parents both smoked, um, but it did for one of them. Uh, but I just thought re- it's what Rebus would do. It's going to be stress relief. It's kind of be part of his character. It's part of this macho image. He would be a drinker and a smoker. But, of course, now that he's older and he has um, COPD, emphysema as was, he's really had to cut out the cigarettes altogether and he's also had to cut back on the drink. So, you know, he's he's not the character he used to be. For sure.
1: Um, but still much loved, obviously. Um, Ian, you mentioned there your mother and father. You, you grew up in Fife um, and uh, I, I gather it wasn't sort of... Um, you know, a typically literary environment um, that, a write, <laughs> that a writer might ordinarily have come from. Is that, is that right?
0: Absolutely. My parents left school at 14, 15, got, you know, working class jobs, lived in a rented house all their life, never owned a car, didn't read much. Um, there was a daily newspaper, but there were very few books in the house. My parents read a book maybe when we went on summer holiday and that was about it. But from a very young age, I was encouraged to read. Comics at that time, comic books, were cheap, affordable literacy, specifically for boys, and I would read maybe five or ten comics a week, mostly produced in Scotland, um, the Dandy, the Beano, the Victor, the Hotspur, and then moving on to American comics like Superman and Batman later on. Um, and I was also introduced to the local library, and you know, one of the proudest moments of my life was when I said, Ian, you're now 12 years old, you can stop using the children's section and move on to the adult section. I went for the books that were... That had been the basis for films I wasn't old enough to see. So books always felt to me like forbidden fruit. I was reading The Exorcist and Jaws and French Connection and The Godfather and The Clockwork Orange. And these were films I wasn't old enough to see because you had to be 18 to see those movies. Uh, But nobody stopped me reading the books. They encouraged me to read the books. I just thought there was always something very exciting about literature.
1: Crikey. So what's it like reading A Clockwork Orange at the age of 12?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I grew up at a time, uh, 1970, I was 12 and 72. The film had been out and then had been banned uh, or withdrawn from from, from uh, public uh, viewing. Uh, but a lot of the guys uh, around me were dressing up like characters from A Clockwork Orange. They had the bover boots, they had the kind of white jeans. Uh, they had the braces. Um, I mean, there was a kind of violent culture around at that time. And what I thought that um, a Clockwork Orange did really well was to in- introduce uh, big moral questions and themes, and and really beautiful literary writing um, to what could have been, a, a f- you know, a sort of fairly grubby story.
1: So was that um, was that probably the first book that you'd say that had a, had a really profound effect on you as a person?
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. and in fact, I've still got the copy that I borrowed from a mate of mine at high school. No um, he'd, it was his brother's, his older brother's copy, and then he got it and he gave it to me, and I read it, and I didn't give it back. Okay. And some of my earliest attempts at writing were attempts to mimic um, Anthony Burgess's style in that book, because he basically came up with his own language um, to give to the teenagers in that book. Uh, that The adults in the book wouldn't be able to understand what the teenagers were saying, and I would try writing stories about my hometown, that were filled with like any, you know, slang, um, and that had an edge of violence to them. And basically I was just, you know, I was copying his style in an attempt to try and find my own voice.
1: Do those do those early
0: drafts still exist or have they been consigned no, to uh everything. Yeah. when when my parents died, uh, the house got cleared out and oh, pretty no, actually, you know, before that, when I went to university, my parents threw a lot of my stuff out, Um, they redecorated, and just thought, Ian's not going to want any of this. Um, And then a lot of it went when my parents died. So I don't have any, the only stuff I've got from when I was a teenager, really, is uh, my diaries. I used to keep a page a day diary from the age of 12, and I've still got all of those. And uh, some uh, cover designs for albums by by the band I invented, the Amoebas, who only existed on paper. Uh, and I would design their album sleeves and I would write their lyrics. None of the lyrics exist, but I've still got the album sleeve. It's
1: important to get the priorities right. So it's, uh, they were called, was it Amoeba? Because I, th- I thought it was a band called Dancing Pigs, but was that later? No, that was a,
0: that was a real band I was in. Uh, okay. uh, the, Dancing, the Dancing Pigs was a band I was a singer in when I was 19. Right. Uh, we, we, didn't, we only lasted six months. Um, no, the Amoebas were this completely fictitious band that I invented sitting in my bedroom.
1: So yeah, so writing saved you from a from a life on the stage, obviously.
0: Um, well, every, oh, most writers I know are frustrated rock stars. We'd much rather be in a band and be successful than be writers. But it, just we've tried it, some of us, and we're just no good at it.
1: <laughs> um, so Ian, yeah, you went on to Edinburgh University to study English, um, and I know that was a decision that your um, parents weren't entirely sure about. Was that was that a sort of real literary awakening for you when you arrived at university?
0: Yeah, it was, because growing up in a a, a mining village of a few thousand people, I kind of had to become a a chameleon. Uh, I pretended to fit in. I felt I didn't really fit in. I felt different. I was sitting in my bedroom writing poetry, but then going down and hanging around town with the tough kids uh, of an evening so that they wouldn't think I was weird or strange or different, because then I would have been picked on, perhaps. When I got to Edinburgh University to study English and yeah my parents wanted me to go to university to get a trade they mm. thought I should do accountancy or law or something that would get me a good job but English was what I was passionate about so I kind of broke the news to them that's what I was going to do I arrived and straight away I found you know uh, like like-minded souls people who wanted to be poets and writers and musicians and actors and directors and make films and put plays on and and it was a time of punk it was 78 and um, punk had come along and there was that can-do element to punk that said, you don't have to have gone to the right schools, you don't have to have the, lots of money for equipment, just if you want to do something, get out there and give it a go. And so, you know, I joined a punk band, I was writing poetry, I was trying to write plays, um, I, and, and nobody thought that was weird or strange, and suddenly there was that kind of flowering. I mean, it was problematic because I spent so much time doing all of that, that in fact my grades dropped um, and, you know, I was nearly, nearly shunted out at the end of second year. It's a four-year degree in Scotland. Of course, yeah. And at, sec- at the end of second year, I just scraped by to get into third year. I think that's um, pretty for the course it, But, you know, but but then having graduated, I, I thought, I don't want a job. I mean, I went out into the cold, hard commercial world, and I didn't like it. Um, so I pleaded with them to let me back in to do my PhD. And they did turn me down the first time. I know this because my diaries tell me this. Um, I was turned down for the funding, and then for whatever reason, uh, the funding committee changed their mind, and I got three years of funding to do a PhD on Muriel Spark.
1: Yes. Okay. So yes, yeah, so Muriel Spark. So 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 during your your time at, at university, when you know you were saying that punk was sort of exploding and all the rest of it, um, a when were you getting a chance to read? Um, you know, aside from all the other activities, a, and
0: what were you reading actually at university? Well, I mean, it wasn't much time for reading stuff that wasn't part of the curriculum. I mean, the curriculum was pretty heavy. You were reading... Maybe three or four books a week, um, trying to write essays, reading all the critical works about those 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 books that you'd read. Um, you know, you could be you could be reading ugh, Joseph Heller's Catch 22 one minute and Paradise Lost the next minute, and then a Shakespeare play, and this would all be part of a week's work. So there wasn't an awful lot of time for 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 reading for pleasure, as it were, which I think it can be problematic. I know a lot of people who left university haven't studied literature. And they never read literature again. They go and read something completely different because the 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 fun has been taken out of reading for them. And you want to try and regain that sense of fun. Um, so, you know, it was the set text. And some books I absolutely loved and, and passionately fell in love with. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde would be one of them. That That's become the kind of template for everything I've written ever since. Um, Bleak House by Charles Dickens mm-hmm. was was a revelation. I just thought it was a superb mystery novel, a piece of storytelling, great characterization. um, And it is definitely one of my favorite books. Um, And also his descriptions of London. I mean, I was, you know, I was at the very start of a process of trying to do something similar with Edinburgh, so that Edinburgh would become the central character in pretty much everything I would write in the future. But I was kind of feeling my way. I mean, all these books were drip-feeding ideas, notions, uh, in, uh, ways of seeing the world uh, in, into my consciousness. and um, But what really did it for me was, was just giving me the three years of funding to do the PhD. And mm. in between reading lots of Muriel Spark novels and writing lots of chapters of the thesis, I wrote three novels in three years. Um, and although write? the first one, first one was never published, um, the, the second one, The Flood, which was about my hometown, did find a small publisher in Edinburgh and then an agent came asking if I had anything else and I said, Well, I've got a book with this guy called Rebus and he's uh he's a cop. And she sold out to a London publisher and that was the start of it.
1: Yeah, it really was. Um I could listen to, to to stories from university life all day, but I wanna scoot up to the to the modern day. Um, what's on your bedside table at the
0: moment, Ian Rankin? Um, Well, I am doing a thing for the BBC where they're getting authors to do the first chapter of a follow-up book to a famous book. And so at the moment I'm reading Lord of the Flies by William Golding, a book I've not read since high school. And uh, when I've read it and digested it, I've then got to decide if William Golding had followed that up, what would be the opening chapter of the next book? Uh, So that's what I'm reading at the moment. It's a really intriguing process. Um, I've just finished reading a book, a huge book by a guy called Don Winslow. Don Winslow is an American crime writer um, and he's just written a 700 page novel about the border between the US and Mexico and about immigrants crossing that border and drugs crossing that border. It's a huge, sprawling, brilliant, engaging novel that's uh, that's got politics at its core, but it's also got humanity at its core. Um, and he's he's an exceptional writer, and that's not quite published yet, but it's coming in the next few weeks, I believe.
1: OK, that's great. That's a nice little, uh, nice little tip for the listeners. Um, I'm going to have to ask you
0: very, very quickly. Um,
1: what does happen after the end of Lord of the Flies in Ian Rankin's head?
0: Uh, well, I've not decided yet. I mean, either it's like minutes later. So, I mean, spoiler alert, the kids are on the beach and the <laughs> sailors arrived and they're going to be taken back to civilization. That's the end of the first book. Well, either it's minutes later on the ship and we see what happens to them or else uh, I'm thinking of going forward 10, 20 years. They've grown up. They've got jobs. Um, but the this, this stuff that happened in the original book is still there as part of their experience and their consciousness. Um, and things start to tip over again uh, when they're adults. I don't know which one of those to choose, to be honest. With well, you, got any? You got which one? Which one do you prefer? Uh,
1: I think minutes after would be ideal because that's like. Well, I mean, it's one of those strange novels where I guess none of us have really read it again since we were probably at school. And then, and then obviously, <laughs> you know, it, it it would probably be very different now. And I'm sure you found it a totally different experience reading it a second time. Um, but you know as a sort of 15 16 year old i always i always felt that the novel ended too soon and, and i'm sure that was a misreading of it on my part so yeah i'm i'm keen to see what happens in the sort of 3 4 right. minutes afterwards
0: don't let me down i'll take I, I will take that on board young man
1: okay i appreciate that thanks very much indeed hey look i need to ask you some more questions about books um so uh what's the book that you wish you'd written and and why
0: um it's a tough one i mean probably bleak house i just think bleak house is the complete package of a book it's entertaining it's funny it's serious it's got a mystery at its core so it's a terrific crime novel it's got a fantastic detective or an early example of a fictional detective inspector bucket uh in it it's got upper classes lower classes the mixing between the two the blending it gives you a a snapshot a satirical snapshot of English society from top to bottom at a really interesting time in history. So, yeah, that's got everything.
1: Okay, great. And are you pretty good at getting, at getting three books? Or are you someone who has half-finished books left all over the house?
0: I try not to have finished books. I try to just, you know, concentrate on one book and get through it from beginning to end. As I'm getting older, I'm starting to go, you know, a big long book, I'll go, oh, really? Uh, do I have to, you know, I could read three short books in the time it takes me to read one long book. Uh, what should I go for, the big long book or the three short books? Um, because I've not got too many years left in me, maybe. Who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm 58. I'm going to be 59 this year. Who knows? The clock is ticking. And there's an awful lot of books out there clamouring for attention. And there's books I want to reread. I mean... Uh, Bleak House I reread every few years but there's also A Dance to the Music of Time by Anthony Paul which was A 12 book sequence that I chose as my desert island book when I was on that show on BBC Radio 4 many years ago. Um, I was cheating because I managed to get 12 books in saying it was a single book. But it is, it's a story of one man's life from childhood through to to late adulthood. Um, And the changes that happened in English society during that period. And it includes World War II. It it includes the 60s. Uh, It's just an, an extraordinary piece of writing and a very beautiful poetic piece of writing. So I would love to sit down and reread that. Maybe I, I just need to get a cold or something or flu so I can lie in bed for a couple of weeks.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't wish that upon yourself. I, um, yes, I did, I, I did read somewhere that uh, that there are a couple of books that, that you haven't been, well, that you have started and, and not really got on with, one of which was War and Peace. But is there a book <laughs> um, that you tell people that you've read but actually haven't? Because I've got a list as long as my arm of those, but I'm always quite, a, oh, quite ashamed to admit them. man.
0: No, I don't think I don't think I would cheat like that because I, I you know I see no shame in not reading a book or not finishing a book. There's plenty of books. I, I don't think I've read Winnie the Pooh. I mean a lot of the classics of English childhood reading because I grew up in Scotland in a working class neighborhood. I didn't read them. I've not I don't think I've ever read an Agatha Christie. I don't think I've ever finished an Agatha Christie, but I'm not, you know, it's not that I'm ashamed of that. It's That's just incredible. it wasn't for me. It wasn't for and if something isn't for you, really you should probably put it aside and find something that is for you.
1: You haven't read Agatha Christie. I find that absolutely unbelievable.
0: I don't think so. I mean, I've seen a couple of the movies. My sister was; she's older than me. She was a fan of Agatha Christie, and there were a few of them lying around the house when I was young. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I picked them up and tried them, and thought, "This world means nothing to me." I'd, these spinsters, these little old ladies, and these Belgian gentlemen—it's just—it doesn't—it doesn't float my boat. <laughs> I—I'm
1: um, well, sure she'd have been a big fan of Rebus, if that's any—if uh, that's any consolation.
0: Well, you know what? I mean, I've—I've I've worked with a lot of the kind of people who came after. Um, Uh, Agatha Christie. I mean, I've done events with Ruth Rendell Mm -hmm. and P.D. James, two of the biggest British English crime writers of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, And they were glorious. And I've read both their books, of course. But it was just, I don't know what it is about Agatha Christie. And my wife's got a huge collection of Agatha Christie paperbacks upstairs. I mean, maybe, maybe one of these days I'll try one.
1: Okay, so I've got a couple more questions for you, Ian Rankin. Um, You mentioned at the beginning of our our conversation that you you borrowed a copy of A Clockwork Orange and and never Mm. returned it. Um, What's the book that you've lent out to someone else and never got back?
0: Um, mm, That's a good question. I often uh, gift people copies of a book called um, Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. It's an early Scottish novel. It's about a religious zealot who uh, meets a charismatic young man who convinces him that he's going to go to heaven no matter what he does on earth uh, because he's a member of the elect. And therefore, he can do whatever the heck he wants, including murdering uh, people such as his own brother and a church minister. So, number one, it's an early example of a serial killer novel. Uh, Number two, it's an extraordinary depiction of evil. And number three, we're never sure if this charismatic stranger is the devil, a psychopath, or a figment of uh, the young man's imagination that is left open to the reader so it's a really it's a it's not an easy book to read but it's a book that is should be better known has had a huge effect on on scottish literature down the ages and i just think more people should read it and know about it so i keep i keep handing copies of that over
1: (laughs) and and how's that received it sounds like quite a uh, sounds like quite pointed gift in some ways
0: uh, well, you know what I mean. It's just I'm just I, I, I'm, I'm just evangelical about that book. Okay. I, I just you know I mean it was a, it was a it was a definite influence on Robert Louis Stevenson and Jekyll and Hyde, um, and it's been an influence on my books as well. And and just what I, I mean I sort of want to show people look this is where I came from. I didn't come from a tradition of Agatha Christie. I came from a tradition of books like this. Okay,
1: so Ian Rankin, a question that we like to ask um, everyone on Books of My Life is, uh, if you are going away, um, and let's just use the Lord of the Flies scenario again, mm-hmm. to the Lord of the Flies type island for a year, um, which three books would you take with you and why? And I'm going to try and push you not to pick ones that you already mentioned.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I mean, uh, they can't be short books. Some of my favourite writers, like Muriel Spark, write really short books. Well, you don't want that in Desert Island. You want big, fat, long books, and maybe books that you've you've struggled with in the past, but you can give them a go. So I might go for Finnegan's Wake, because although I've read Ulysses by James Joyce, I've never, ever, ever got through Finnegan's Wake. I even went to a class recently on Finnegan's Wake to try and explain it, have it explained to me so that I could have a go at it. So I'll take Finnegan's Wake because I could spend my entire life reading that book trying to make sense of it. Um, uh, Probably Anna Karenina, Tolstoy. I did eventually manage to get through War and Peace so let's go for Anna Karenina next um, and see how we get on with that. So that's two big fat books Uh, and I don't I mean not the longest books in the world but Jane Austen is someone I studied at university and then just dropped uh, like the proverbial hot potato. I mean I should give Jane Austen another go so maybe Persuasion uh, would do it okay. um, yeah let's go with those
1: why did you drop Jane Austen like a hot potato you suddenly just got, got sick of it
0: I, you know what 19th century I mean with the with the possible exception of Dickens 19th century English literature didn't really grab me
1: okay and how about um how about one one of your rebus novels which is uh, which? which one's gonna go with you
0: uh well you know the one that was the breakthrough for me in terms of sales and getting noticed and and actually realizing for the first time that this career was 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 going to work out for me was was black and blue which is like number 7 in the series i mm-hmm. think so it was quite a uh, you know i'd published about 12 books by the time that came along and i'd struggled and almost been dropped by various publishers and then eventually black and blue was the end of my apprenticeship and the first of the mature uh, rebus novels so it's a book that i'm very proud of and it's a book that i've never reread so i would i would welcome rereading that one
1: Ian Rankin, thank you so much those are the books of your life you've been incredibly uh, incredibly good value and I do hope that your recommendations will encourage all of our listeners to do that slightly old-fashioned thing and uh, put their phones down pick up a book for a couple of minutes or possibly even more every day Ian Rankin, thank you so much I appreciate that thank you